The reading today is in two parts, the first part being from the book of Haggai. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses whilst this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink and never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on all the labour of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. The second reading is from the book of Mark, chapter 12. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few pence. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in into the treasury more than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Good morning. My name's David. I'm part of the leadership team here at Dorchester Community Church. Thank you for Tabitha for bringing us that uh, fairly long reading from God's Word. I wonder how you feel about money. 
I wonder what your feelings were when you looked at perhaps the Bridge magazine or you uh, looked at the church website and you saw that today we were going to be looking at the subject of giving. Money matters. I wonder how comfortable you feel listening to a message on money. Perhaps you think, well, it's none of the church's business. What I do with my money is my business. It's for no one else to know about. If you feel uncomfortable listening to a message on money, let me reassure you, I probably feel equally uncomfortable giving a message on money. It's not something, generally speaking, as a church, we talk about very often. We believe when we come to hear what God says to us, he normally has a lot of other things to talk to us about. But it is right that when it comes up as a series of uh, looking at perhaps passages of scripture or a series of topics and money comes up, we do talk about it and we do think about it and we ask God, God, what are you saying into my life about this topic? Those of you who've been coming over the last few uh, weeks or months or have been studying the Bridge magazine will know that as a church, for the beginning few weeks of this year, we've been looking at a series of ten topics. Those ten topics have been lifted from our website where we have um, a selection of values that we hold as to what it means to be a Christian, but more than that, what it means to engage with a local community of God's people. In other words, what does it mean to be a member of a church? And the things we've looked at have been things like believing and serving and witnessing and sharing They're not a list of things that we expect to be able to tick off before you become a member of this church. We don't want to see evidence that you've witnessed to five people every day for the last month, or we're not looking out to make sure you look sufficiently reverent in worship before you can become a member of the church. But nevertheless, they are ten values that we think are important. They're not things that we all get right all of the time, but they are things that we think we should place an emphasis on in our lives. They're not complicated things, there's nothing there that you would say is rocket science, but they're all things that we find time and time again God's people practiced throughout the Bible, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, in the early church. This morning we're looking at the subject of giving. Perhaps someone said to you, well it's not about the money, it's about the principle. And usually what they mean is it's not about the principle, it's about the money. Does our giving begin and end with money? What can we give to God? Well, we can give our time, we can give our energy, we can give enthusiasm, gifts, talents, expertise, experience. These are all things that God gives to us. And we can choose to keep those things and use them for our own ends, or we can choose to give some of them back to God. Now, a couple of weeks ago, Roger talked about serving. And within the topic of serving, we wrapped up a whole lot of things like energy, enthusiasm, time, gifts, talents, spiritual gifts that God gives to us. And so this morning, we are going to focus much more on giving from our finances. 
sometimes seems to me that our 21st century attitude towards money is a bit like the Victorian's attitude towards sex. Everybody thinks about it, most people have an opinion about it, but nobody wants to talk about it. Why should we give to God? Well, you could say there's a very simple answer to that. The church costs money to run. We have bills to pay. We have this lovely building. We took out a mortgage to complete this building that needs to be paid month by month. We have staff that we have to pay. We have ministry opportunities that cost money. All of those things are right and true, but none of them are the reason that we should give to God. We should give to God primarily because it is a part of our worship. Whenever we take up the collection, somebody uh, who's uh, leading the service through will normally say something like, this is a part of our worship. If you're not a part of this church, don't feel you need to put any money in. And we normally have something that goes up on the screen to that effect. Now, we partly say that, say that people who aren't a part of the church or feel uncomfortable with what's happening understand the principle behind what we're doing. But it's a very real principle. It is a part of our worship. Worship is all about giving back to God what he has already given to us. It literally expresses his worth-ship in our lives. What is God worth to us? Is God something we do for a couple of hours at the weekend? Or is God something that affects every single corner of our lives? Is our worship about singing lovely songs on a Sunday morning? Or is it about honouring God in every corner of our lives? When we give to God, I believe we're making a clear statement to God about his importance in our lives. It shows that we take God seriously. In our readings this morning, we saw three different attitudes towards giving. In the story of Haggai, we saw how the people had become bored and disillusioned with giving to God, and they had stopped altogether. And then in that uh, passage from the Gospels, from the New Testament, we saw how one group of people gave lots of money, but for the wrong reasons. And we saw how one lady gave a tiny amount of money, but for the right reasons. We're going to be looking chiefly at this story of Haggai, and we're going to be looking and seeing what we can understand and learn about how we should give to God. Uh, Sometimes these stories in the Old Testament need a little bit of unpacking, a little bit of context. And so just in way of a background to the story of Haggai, um, some 20 years before Haggai wrote this, Cyrus, the king of the Persians, had conquered Babylon. And he had spoken out concerning the Israelites who were exiled in that city. The Israelites had been exiled some 70 years before that by kings who had overrun Israel and Judah. And as they conquered Israel and Judah, they took everyone and anything that was of value or significance and they took them into exile in Babylon. And 
Babylon is conquered itself by this foreign pagan king. But something happens to this foreign king when he enters the city of Babylon and God speaks into his heart. We have the story recorded at the beginning of Ezra and this is what we read. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken to Jeremiah, this is God doing it, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus. This is God at work of Persia to make a proclamation. This is what the king said. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, that was God's people Israel who were exiled in Babylon, the people are to provide them, that is the inhabitants of Babylon, are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock and with free at will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. And that's what happened. And we read that about 42,000 exiles moved back from Babylon to Jerusalem and together with those who had remained in exile, they started to rebuild their homes, their lives, and more importantly, they started to rebuild the temple of God. And we read in Ezra just a few months after returning against all the odds, but in boldness and in obedience to God's word, the people rebuilt the altar in the temple of the Lord and they offered the appointed sacrifices. They did this even though the foundation of the temple hadn't yet been laid. Such was the importance of worshipping God and honouring him in their lives and being obedient to his word. Fast forward 20 years and we find ourselves in the book of Haggai in the reading that Tabitha brought to us. And what had started out so well has all gone very badly wrong. What can we learn from this sorry situation we read about? What does it teach us about giving to God? First of all, I think it teaches us we should give to God because God first gives to us. Haggai is very specific about the way he dates his prophecy. He says, in the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came. I don't think any other Old Testament prophet dates his prophecy so specifically. In fact, not only can we pin down the year that this happened, we can say it happened on the 29th of August in our modern calendar. Why does that matter? Why did Haggai feel he needed to record that? Well, to the Israelites under the calendar established by the Mosaic law, this would have been the start of their new year. This would have been, if you like, January the 1st, New Year's Day, maybe a time for New Year's resolutions. But I think more than that, it was a time that they celebrated what was called the New Moon Festival. What was that all about? Well, the 29th of August, in other words, the end of the summer would have meant the same to them as it means to us. It's the time when the crops are harvested. It's the time when the food is brought in. 
And the emphasis in the law was on giving back to God the very first of the harvest and the very best of the harvest. This was about giving back to the God who had given to them, who had provided them with a harvest through the summer, as a thank you for the way that God sustained them in their lives. Whether or not that actually happened, we don't know. But it is clear why Haggai was so pedantic in recording the date. There would have been sacrifices made on the altar that day, and the people would, or at least they should, have come in their droves to offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and gratitude to an altar in a ruined building. What better time for God to make clear to Haggai the sorrowful situation his people had created. God, through this foreign pagan king Cyrus, had provided them with everything they needed to rebuild the temple, and yet nothing had happened. Why? Because the people had become mealy-mouthed and tight-fisted in their attitude towards God. Secondly, I think we see we should give obediently. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built, which was nothing short of a blatant lie. The opening verses of Ezra make it clear that it was not just the decree of the king that had brought them back to the land to rebuild the temple. This was the hand of God at work in the life of that king. If there was any truth in what the people said, it was in fact that the temple should have been finished being built some 20 years earlier. The response of the people... Oh, the time has not yet come. It's not the right time to rebuild the temple. Shows the reality of what they were thinking. Apathy, defeatism, a sense of spiritual decay had set in to such a level that they had normalised their own sense of disobedience. God had told them what to do. He had given them the materials to do it with, but they had convinced themselves that the time wasn't right, and in fact, God hadn't quite provided them with enough. Maybe in years to come, it would be the right time to build God's temple. Maybe in years to come, they would have the right building materials. But, you know, really now would not be a prudent time. This is the tragedy of the human condition we become very adept at normalising what we know is wrong and what is against what God has decreed for us. You know, it's a, a short journey from, well, you know, I won't give quite as much this month because I've got a big bill coming up. I'll, 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 I'll make up for it next month. And then, well, actually, I'll, I'll make up for it next year. Or, you know, next year I'm going to get that pay rise. Next year I'll have paid off this loan or that loan. We may at first feel some discomfort at not doing what God wants us to do, but we're very good at rationalising what we do, even when we know it's not right. 
I have to say, this is a challenge not just for us as individual Christians. This is a challenge for the church as well. We have uh, regular meetings to discuss what we're going to do, how we're going to do it, how much it's going to cost, how we're going to pay for it. And we have financial obligations as a church. We have a mortgage to pay. We have staff to pay for. We have bills to pay. We have to be open to opportunities that God gives us that might cost money. It's very easy for us to say, oh, no, not at the moment. Let's wait till next year. Let's see how the giving increases over the next 12 months, and then we'll make a decision. It's very easy for us to forget to say, what is God saying into this situation? It sometimes seems that from a human perspective, there is never a right time to give to God. I think from God's perspective, there's never a wrong time. I would add into that the caveat I am very aware that there are some people who live on very little and have very little to give. And if you can only give a tiny amount, that's fine. We had read to us a story of the widow's might, and that demonstrates to us that God is not impressed with the amount we give. God is more impressed with our heart as we give. It doesn't matter how little we give. If we give because that is what God has laid on our heart and we are being obedient to God's calling on our life, God loves that. I'm also aware there are some people who find it impossible to give and also honour God in other parts of their lives. And if that's you, God knows your situation, he knows your heart, he knows your circumstances, and I believe God would say to you, honour me in the other parts of your life rather than in your finances. Back to the story. The the tragedy of this story is that in Ezra, we read of the very particular arrangements that the king made for the wood to be provided for the temple. We read in Ezra that uh, they gave money to the masons and carpenters. They gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorised by Sirius, king of Persia. God, through the king, had made very specific, very elaborate arrangements for there to be timber available for the rebuilding of the temple. Something had happened in the intervening period of time. The timber arrived for the use in the temple for carrying out God's work as expressed through the king, and the people looked at the temple, and then they looked at their own houses... And they thought, we'd quite like some nice panelled houses, a nice luxurious home, nice and comfortable to live in, bit of a status symbol, make us look good to the neighbours. And God says to his people through Haggai, is it right that you live in luxurious panelled houses when a temple remains a ruin? Next we see we should give cheerfully. There's a little phrase that appears three times in the book of Haggai. Give careful thought 
to your ways. Verse 5, this is what the Lord Almighty says, give careful thought to your ways. Haggai then goes on to unpack what he means. And he says, you've planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages, but you put them in purses with holes in. The people had clearly done some things right. They had developed an agricultural economy. They weren't poor and dispossessed. They were living in some state of relative wealth. They had food to eat. They had drink to drink. They had clothes to wear. They were earning money. But they were terminally dissatisfied with what they had. Whatever they had, whatever God had provided them with, they wanted more. That's probably something that we can all identify with, isn't it? Who of us haven't thought at the end of probably quite a lot of months, if only I had another £20, if only we had another £50, another £100, we would be all right. If I just had a little bit more, I wouldn't lay awake worrying about my finances. And I don't think it matters how much money we earn, we could all do with a bit more. But I think God says, look... This is about perspective. Think carefully about what you're doing. You expected much, but it turned out to be little. I think some commentaries have concluded from this passage that God sent a drought and a famine to punish the people from holding back, for keeping the timber for themselves. I'm not sure that's fair Necessarily, I think the people were punishing themselves. They had become greedy. They had become obsessed with their own wealth and with building luxurious houses for themselves. And this had made them unhappy. It had made them dissatisfied. God declared that he had caused a drought. But I think we need to recognise what was the cause and what was the effect The people had become focused on their own material wealth and they had become dissatisfied. And so God tests them on their priorities. Are you concerned with me and what I can provide for you? Or are you concerned with what you can provide for yourselves? Jesus, I think, recognises the same fundamental principle at work in the human heart. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says... For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. What is important to you? Because your heart will follow. If your heart, if your treasure is in what you can provide for yourself, that is where your heart will be. And I would suggest you will never provide enough for yourself. If your heart, if your treasure rather is in what God can provide for you, then you'll find he will supply abundantly. There's a a passage in uh, 2 Corinthians, which is very often quoted. This is Paul talking to the church at Corinth. He says, each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Have you ever had that said to you? The Lord loves a cheerful giver. And I think the conclusion reached by many people is that we should be cheerful before we start to give. And of course, there is a sense in that is right, in which that is right. Um, I think the reality is, if we give with a right heart, that is, 
not reluctantly, not under compulsion. It makes us cheerful givers. It helps us to get a correct understanding of what we can provide for ourselves and what actually God can provide for us. When we fail to give, when we give reluctantly, we find we count the cost too heavily. We look at what we're missing in life rather than what God can provide. This is what happened in Haggai. They were obsessed with the fact that what God had provided was not enough for them. And it wasn't enough for them to live on and to give back to God. And so we find that somehow God took what they had and he turned it into even less. You expected much, but it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. A couple of books on from Haggai. We find ourselves at the book of Malachi, the very last book in the Old Testament. And Malachi was a contemporary of Haggai, and he makes the point even more severely. Through Malachi, God accuses his people of robbing him. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And then God says something quite remarkable. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates in heaven and pour out so much blessing, there will not be enough room to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in the field will not drop their fruit before it is ripe. All nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land. In the book of Haggai, there's a sense that God is testing his people. But Malachi says to God's people, you know, you can test God in this and see if he will not pour out abundant riches on you. Next, we see we should give now. Maybe like Israel in the time of Haggai, we haven't been giving what we should be giving. We haven't been giving what we know God has laid on our heart to give. Maybe, like Israel, it's made us hungry and dissatisfied. You know, the fantastic thing with God is it doesn't matter what we've got wrong. It doesn't matter what misjudgments we've made, what things God has told us to do that we haven't done, or perhaps that we have done that God's told us not to do. God is a God who loves to give his people a second chance. He loves to draw a line under all the mistakes we've made and say, right, Let's move forward together, you and me, and see what we can achieve together. Once again, that little phrase comes back to us. Give careful thought to your ways. The last time Haggai had said it, he was urging Israel to consider what they had got wrong. This time he says it and he urges Israel to consider what they can do to put the situation right. It's well said that action without contemplation is foolish. Contemplation without action is sterile. It's no good just thinking about what you've got wrong. You've got to do something to put it right. Action following contemplation is evidence 
that God's word has been both heard and taken to heart. God doesn't just say, you've got it wrong, you've blown it, you squandered what I gave you, tough, your chance is up, that's it, it's the end of the story. He says, look, go up into the mountains, bring down the timber that's there, build the house that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured. The time for challenge, the time for introspection was over, the time for action had arrived. God had commanded the people to build a temple. He'd given them the resources to do it. They'd squandered those resources on their own houses. They'd become dissatisfied with their lot in life. But God had not written his people off. When we are God's and we make mistakes, God never writes us off. He always gives us a second chance. What God had so elegantly provided through King Cyrus was gone. But you know what? After 70 years in exile, when the bulk of the population had disappeared, the timber, the trees in the mountains that had probably been seedlings and saplings and whippets when they had left were now fully mature trees. God says there's timber in the hills. Fell it, bring it down, build my temple that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured. Finally, I believe we should give systematically. If you come back tonight, we're going to be looking at uh, uh, briefly at a passage from the story of the Exodus, the very first temple that God had his people build. It wasn't a temple in terms of bricks and mortar, but it was a, more of a tent so that it could be portable and be moved. And when the original tabernacle was uh, assembled, there was a very specific, if you like, bill of materials that God gave to his people to, to, to give. And it says, each man should give as his heart prompts him. And the bill of materials was some very strange things by modern building standards. There was gold and silver and timber and Goat skins and skins of sea cows dyed red. We haven't used a whole lot of those in this building. It was all things that God had provided. It was all things that people had. And then he said, give back to me as your heart prompts you. It would have been no use God prompting someone's heart to give timber because he had timber. And that person saying, well, do you know, I'm not going to bring timber, even though that's what God's told me to bring and it's what I've got. I'm going to bring something different. When we give, we should give in a systematic and methodical way. You imagine what would have happened if instead of raising money for this building and paying a contractor to build the money and buy the materials, we'd all scratched around at the back of the garage and bought in the bits of 4 by 2 and the half bags of cement that are four years old and the bits of plasterboard. I don't think we would have had a very good church, would we? We no longer have a list of building supplies. But it is important that our giving is orderly, and systematic. I believe we should give back to God as he gives to us. If God gives to you on a monthly basis through a regular salary, that's how we should give to God. It's not rocket science, but it does make sense. What we give to God 
should be from the top of what God gives us. Not from what we've got left over at the end of the month. Because you know as well as I do, there never is anything left over at the end of the month, is there? We should give to God as soon as he has given to us. I find that the easiest way to do that is by setting up a monthly standing order to the church. And if that's something that interests you, go and talk to Liz or Kevin about it. We should also give what we know is the right amount to give. Tabitha read to us that story from the Gospels. And from that we very clearly see God is not impressed by big amounts of money if we're giving it with the wrong heart. God is interested in us giving him the right amount of money with the right heart, even if that's two small coins. For some people, they talk about tithing, giving 10% of their growth income. I think that is a necessarily uh, unnecessarily legalistic to a, approach to giving, but for some people it's a helpful starting point. I think what is much more important is that we do it methodically, and regularly. Paul says to the church in Corinth, now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. In other words, this wasn't specific advice for one church, this was Paul's general advice for all the churches. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Can you see what was happening here? The Apostle Paul would go round on foot, or probably on horseback, to the various churches. And when he arrived, they would give him a gift. And with that gift, he would then go and plant another church. He would go and preach the gospel. If they hadn't been making regular collections, if they hadn't been giving money regularly and saving it up, the Apostle Paul would turn up, and they would look very red-faced and say, well, we haven't got any money for you. Bert's scratching around down the back of his sofa. Myrtle thinks she's got a bit of loose change in the back of her car. When Paul came, because they had been giving regularly and systematically and methodically, there was an amount of money that the Apostle Paul could take away and use for God's work. And you know, it's just the same nowadays. There are regular financial obligations we have, but every now and again, an opportunity is dropped into the church's lap by God, and it's too good to pass up. And we need to make sure that there is some sort of resource there in order to enable that ministry to happen. But you know, something else happens as well when we give systematically and regularly. It becomes automatic. It becomes something we do without even thinking about it. In fact, it becomes what all of our acts of worship towards God should become. It becomes a part of our way of life. Not something we think about, not something we do and count the cost. It becomes something that is second nature to us. There's a little story in Matthew 25, and I'll close with this, which always has a profound impact on me when I read it. Not because it tells me what I should be doing for God, but because it challenges my motives for what I do for God. Jesus talks about the end of time, and he says, 
the nations will be gathered and he will separate the people from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. The king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me and I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. And the righteous say something quite remarkable. They say, Lord, when did this happen? I don't remember any of that stuff happening. When did we see you when you were hungry? Or feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink. When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in, needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And God says, whatever you did for the least of these people, you did it for me. When we give to God, when we glorify God, when we honour God, not just in our giving, but in every part of our lives, when we do it all the time without counting the cost, because we want to, not under compulsion, not reluctantly, we do it so automatically, we don't even know we're doing it. How wonderful if on that day that God is talking about, we're in heaven and we're wandering around and a complete stranger comes up to us and says, thank you. Thank you for what you did for me. I've never seen you before. What did I do for you? Well, you know that church you went to? They do a meal share, did a meal share and food share. And they put food on our family's table for months. And, you know, we got talking to the person that delivered that food and... They were nice to us and invited us to church. My children came to your church and they got talking to that youth pastor that your church funded. And because of that, they're here now too. We went to that evangelistic event that you ran out in the great field. It was great. Lots of free bouncy castles, free burgers. And because of that, we started coming to church. Whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. As we close, we're going to sing a song. It's a song that's very important to my wife and I because we sang it on our wedding day. And I know uh, a few months ago I was talking to Tim Westwood about it and he said he had it at his baptism. Tim, if you're listening online, we're looking forward to seeing you back here. We're great. Uh, It's great to hear that you're doing better. He said, every line is a challenge to my life. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. And you know, for me, the biggest challenge comes in verse 5, and I suggest if you're, particularly if you're a man here today, this will be a challenge to you. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart. It is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. Let's bow our heads and pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us so much. We thank you that you have a plan and a purpose for our lives. We thank you that you gave us your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have given us a sense of purpose. You have given us a place in your kingdom. You have given us the right to be called sons and daughters of God. Heavenly Father, please help us to honour and glorify you in every corner of our lives. Not just when people are watching, but help us to do it in every corner of our lives. So we do it so automatically. There'll come a time when you say, well done, good and faithful servant. What you did for the least of these, you did for me. Amen. Amen.